Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to the LSC. Uh, welcome to our students from the LSC, and welcome in particular to, to visitors uh, to the LSC. Professor Alexander Brusevich Kamienski has a longer association with the study of, of, of Russian history. He began his long and distinguished career working in the Ar Russian State Archive of Ancient Acts uh, when he was at the Moscow Oblast Education Institute. He undertook his first research degree at the Russian State Institute of History and Archives and defended that in 1984. He then took up a teaching position in the same institution, which later became the Russian State Humanities University. He was awarded his second doctorate in 1999 and became a professor in, in 2000. And then he moved to the Higher School of Economics to become the Dean of the Faculty of History. And the LSE, of course, has got a strong connection with the Higher School of Economics because we have a, a connection through our economics department uh, with, with the, the, the School of, of uh, Economics and, and Finance within the Higher School of Economics. He's the author of more than 200 works on Russian history, Seems a bit too many to me, but <laughs> <laughs> nevertheless, he published his first major reconsideration of Catherine's reign to appear in Russia since 1917 in the journal Vaprosi Story in 1989, and then he produced two full-length studies of Catherine's reign under the auspices of Catherine, the second half of the 18th century in 1992, and then the life and fate of Catherine the Great in 1997. His overview of the Russian Empire's emergence in the 18th century was published in English and Russian in the late 1990s. And his most recent monograph is a micro-history of the, the life of the provincial town of Bajets in the 18th century. So Professor Kamienski is enormously distinguished, but that of course is only half of the story. I think for many of us here, our acquaintance with uh, Professor Kamienski is just the sort of the new face of, of Russian history with Perestroika, he was the one who I think most of us had initial contact with. His English was perfect, he was very open, he wanted to engage with Western scholarship. And I think for us that was a, an enormous advantage and something which I think for many of us in this room means we regard him not just as a distinguished co colleague, a distinguished historian, but as a very close and dear friend as well. And it's in this context, I think, in the context of Professor Kamensky's contribution to not only Russian history, but to the whole relationship between Russia and England, that the title of the, the lecture is most appropriate. Reflections on Russia's place in Europe in the 18th century. So we're very pleased, we're very honoured from the LSE to welcome you tonight. We very much look forward to hearing your lecture. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, dear colleagues, first of all, I would like to thank you for inviting me to London School of Economics and Political Science and thus giving me a chance to share and discuss with you some uh, ideas on the role of Russia in 18th century Europe. Uh, actually, the title of this lecture was suggested by Professor Janet Hartley. And my only contribution to it was adding the word reflections. <laughs> uh, I thought it wouldn't be right if I just lecture you on 18th century Russian foreign policies, as British historians have greatly contributed to 18th century Russian studies. And I'd say to speak on this topic in London is kind of a challenge. Uh, more than 20 years ago, when I was working on my first book on 
Catherine the Great. And I was already in the middle of that work when I finally had a chance to read Isabel de Madariaga's Russia in the Age of Catherine the Great. And when I finished reading that book, I thought, uh, I thought I should have probably dropped my work <laughs> because there was little or almost nothing that I could add to what Professor Madariaga had already written. There were three reasons why I didn't. Uh, first, unfortunately, there was no chance to translate Madariaga's book and publish it in Russia at that time, and we managed to do that only 10 years later. Uh, second, I already had a contract with a publisher, and I thought he wouldn't like it. And third, uh, my book, uh, my book uh, was uh, to be the first Russian book on Catherine in many decades. Nowadays it looks rather strange, but uh, at that time there were rather few uh, people in the Soviet Union who uh, were in 18th century Russia studies. And those who were, uh, were mostly working on such topics like class struggle or mm -hmm. economic history. Uh, Professor Hartley has just mentioned my article on Catherine published in 1989. And uh, when the Vaprosa Historia Journal, which was the major Russian historical journal at that time, when they wanted to, they decided to publish an essay on Catherine the Great, they spent some time looking for an author. They couldn't find one. And then they offered me uh, to write it, though I hadn't written a line on Catherine before that. So they just couldn't find an author. But soon after, things started to change rapidly. And by now, we have, I think, several times more new books on 18th century Russia than we had throughout the whole communist period. Uh, the range of topics discussed in those books, as well as the range of research methods used, have become much wider. And it seems we now not only know more about Russia in the 18th century, but we also understand it better. Uh, but knowing more and understanding better doesn't mean that we know all and that our understanding is complete. Fortunately, the process of cognition has no limits and we still have dozens of thousands of 18th century documents that have never been studied. And uh, to say nothing of thousands more, there should be reread in you. One of the topics that have become very popular in post-Soviet Russia is its relations with the outer world. Uh, in the 20-year period we had numerous conferences and dozens of books titled Russia in France, Russia in Germany, Russia in Britain and Russia in Europe. This last title is to my mind is a paradox. 250 years ago, Catherine the Great published her nakaz, her instruction to the Legislative Commission. Uh, <coughs> it's well known that most of it she borrowed from Montesquieu, Descartes, and other uh, European thinkers. 
Still, there were some passages that she composed herself. And among them is Article 6 that declares Russia is a European power. Why did Catherine need this statement? Part of the explanation is in the next article, which declares changes that Peter the Great had undertaken were more successful because the customs of that time were not corresponding to the climate and were brought to us by the mixture of different peoples and the conquest of aligned lands. Introducing European dispositions and customs to, to a European people, Peter I found it easier than he had expected. Did by saying this Catherine mean that everything else she was suggesting to the deputies of the commission was also of European origin. But she didn't mention any sources she used in any other article of Nakas. Uh, and uh, most of the deputies who had never heard of Montesquieu or Beccaria uh, probably believed that the Empress invented it all by herself. It seems more probable that the idea of Russia being a European power was one of the ideas that Catherine wanted the deputies to learn about. Again, it wasn't that the deputies didn't know about that. It was that most of them just didn't give it a thought. Uh, but Catherine wanted them to know that they lived in Europe and therefore were Europeans. It's quite clear why it was important for Catherine to know that she was ru ruling a European country. Uh, but also the appearance of this article to my mind, uh, the appearance of it in the Nakaz, tells us that by this time the issue of Russia being or not being part of Europe was already there. This issue first appeared in the 18th century due to the reforms of Peter the Great, and since then has become the main theme of Russian political thought. It has been discussed for at least two centuries, and is still widely discussed in Russia today. And that brings us back to the titles of the books published lately. If we talk to the authors of these books, they will tell us that they have no doubt that Russia is part of Europe. But still, they are writing not about Russia and the rest of Europe, but they are writing about Russia and Europe as two different things. Uh, and this is another reason to get back to the 18th century when it all began. Uh, a German historian, Jürgen Osterhammel, in his book Transformation of the World, History of the 19th Century, which was published just a couple of years ago, asserts that from Peter the Great and until the Congress of Vienna in 1815, the image of Russia in Western Europe was that of a civilized country. And only after the suppression of the Decembrists and the Polish uprisings of 1825 and 1830, <coughs> Russia turned, as he says, into the fright of Western European liberalism. I think this assertion is not quite correct, 
it may be more or less true for Western European elites. But uh, from, for instance, from Larry Wolf's inventing Eastern Europe, we know that even in the end of the 18th century, for many Europeans, the civilized world ended at the border of Germany and Poland. Uh, and when they entered, some of them at least, entering Poland, thought that they were in Asia now. Uh, Janet Hartley in her Russia, 1762-1825, uh, the power of the state and the people, mentioned that the ministers of Britain and Austria, the Congress of Vienna, viewed Russia as a greater threat to European stability than France. Still, there is no doubt that the role of Russia changed drastically in the early 18th century due to Peter the Great. Most Russian historians will immediately jump in with an exact date, June 27, 1709, when the Swedes were defeated by the Russian army at the Battle of Poltava. If you open any Russian textbook in history, whether for high school or for university, you will read that since that moment, Russia became a great power. Uh, Russia is a great power, and this is a phrase that contemporary Russian politicians keep repeating again and again. Uh, as for me, when discussing the, the Battle of Poltava in my lecture course on 18th century Russia, I always ask my students, what does it mean that Russia became a great power? The first chapter of uh, Dominic Levin's Russia against Napoleon is titled Russia as a Great Power. It's 40 pages long. My students are much more laconic. <laughs> <laughs> the common answer I guess I get usually is they started to be afraid of us. <laughs> there are at least three characteristic things about this answer to my mind. First of all, it's obvious that for Russian mentality to be strong still means to be frightful, fearful. Second, they is the rest of the world, which to their mind still opposes Russia. And third, young Russians still identify themselves with the Russians of the 18th century. Uh, very often, when my students are telling me about the battle at Pantava, they say, our army moved, our, and so on. And I always ask them, who's? <laughs> uh, since 1991, the political leaders of the new Russia that emerged after the collapse of the Soviet Union have been basing their legitimacy uh, on the idea of a thousand-year history of Russian statehood. Uh, on the one hand, it's a very solid basis, but on the other hand, it means that Russians have to carry with them all the burdens and problems uh, of the past including the unsolved riddle of Russia being or not being part of Europe. <coughs> when a few years ago in a TV interview I happened to suggest that we were living now in a new and a very young country, 
I got many angry comments with accusations of neglecting a thousand-year-long Russian history. Back to the 18th century. There is no debate about the meaning of the Russian victory at Poltava. Starting the battle, Peter certainly hoped for the best. He probably dreamed of stopping the Swedish invasion to Ukraine and making the Swedes retreat back to Poland. But the result surpassed all expectations. The Swedish army was defeated and, in fact, ceased to exist. That is why, in his first letters written after the battle, Peter spoke of an unexpected victory. At that time, he certainly didn't know much about great powers and probably uh, imagined the greatness of Russia primarily not in military terms but in terms of sea trade, having Britain as an example. The victory at Poltava was a turning point in the Northern War and in Russian history, but also it appeared to be a turning point in the history of Europe, at least Northern Europe. Uh, Sweden could not dominate the region anymore and, according to Peter Englund, uh, left the scene of world history moving to the stalls while Russia ascended the scene and became one of the main actors. There is a strong belief in Sweden today that it was the loss at Poltava that laid basis for a small and prosperous country with high standards of life that we know now. In a longer perspective, along with disappearance of the Polish state in 1795 and Finland becoming part of Russian Empire in 1809, it made possible the appearance of Scandinavian identity, and Scandinavia is a specific European region. I said earlier, at least for, the, for Northern Europe, because in 1709, Russia's role in Europe was not yet predominant. It still had to finish the Northern War, which took 12 years more, and still had the Turkish problem at hand. Two years later, Peter the Great was nearly taken prisoner by the Turks at the Prut River and had a narrow escape. We may speculate that if he didn't escape, not only Russian history but world history could be very different. Uh, talking about the emergence of Russia at the international arena, I would suggest that two more dates are no less important. The first is, 18, uh, is sorry, 1686, uh, when Russia joined the Anti-Turkish Holy League. It's obvious that it was a forced decision, uh, as at that moment the Ottoman Empire was Russia's most dangerous uh, rival, and it was not possible to fight it alone. But at the same time, it meant a radical change not only in Muscovite foreign policies, but also in the minds of its rulers. Uh, we do not know whether they were already dreaming of Russia as an active party in European history, but they were obviously identifying themselves rather with Christian Europe than with the Muslim Orient. The second date is 40 years later, that is 1726, 
when Russia signed the Treaty of Alliance with Vienna, thus recognizing the pragmatic sanction of Emperor Charles VI. In uh, 1746, this treaty was renewed. Uh, the 18th century European diplomatic and military history, as I see it, uh, may be interpreted as a history of different coalitions, fighting each other and exchanging their members, as it happened in the diplomatic revolution of 1756. So, it was by joining one of the coalitions that Russia, in fact, became integrated into European <coughs> politics. The treaty with Austria determined Russian foreign policies until 1762, when it was destroyed by Peter III. It was according to this treaty that Russia joined France and Austria in the fight against Prussia and Britain and took part in the Seven Year War, which was her first uh, international, first European war, the war that Winston Churchill even called the First World War. The war ended with uh, the victory of Britain and Prussia. France lost its territories in North America, India and the Caribbean. Prussia kept Silesia and became another significant actor on the international scene. What was the role of Russia in the Seven Year War? Again, we may spec speculate that if it were not for Russia, the consequences of the war for Austria could be much more disastrous. On the other hand, it was Peter III who in fact saved Frederick the Great from final defeat. Uh, we should remember that already in uh, 1759, Britain suggested peace negotiations, and while France agreed to that, uh, Austria and Russia rejected it. The war went on, and by 1762, Prussian resources were mostly exhausted. Uh, it was what Frederick called the miracle of the House of Brandenburg, uh, but in reality it was the death of Russian Empress Elizabeth and uh, Peter III ascending the throne that saved Russia. By saying this, I do not mean that the role of Russia in the Seven, years war, seven Year War was decisive. More so, it certainly <coughs> didn't have any influence on the events in America or India. It's obvious that each of the participants played its own role, and unfortunately historians lack any kind of uh, you know, scales with, with which we could make any exact measurements of whose role was greater. But at the same time, it's obvious that at least in Europe, Russia's role was as important as those of other countries. Several decades later, Russia's role proved really decisive in the events, the consequences of which proved to be disastrous, both for Europe and Russia. Uh, I mean the partitions of Poland. For about two centuries after that, Russian historians have been making enormous effort <laughs> to prove that the partitions of Poland were inevitable or to stress the fact that initially it was suggested not by Russia, but by Prussia or Austria. Discussing these interpretations with my students, I usually tell that, them 
that if uh, one of your neighbors suggests that you join him in robbing uh, another neighbor, uh, he is uh, an initiator of the crime, would probably be in prison for a couple of years longer, but you will get into prison all the same. Uh, to my mind, more important is the, is the fact that by participating in the partitions of Poland, Russia acquired its greatest problem, which hasn't been solved until now. Everything that happened between Russia and Poland after that, uh, Poles jo joining Napoleon's army in his war against Russia in 1812, Alexander I's attempts to start his political reforms in Poland as the most westernized imperial periphery, uh, Polish uprisings of 1830 and 1863, the Soviet-Polish War of 1920, and the tragedy of Katyn, and so on, should be traced back into the 18th century. As for Europe, in general, it seems interesting that when it happened in the 18th century, neither Britain nor France cared much about it, or at least didn't consider it possible to interfere, while a century and a half later it was the German invasion into Poland that started the Second World War. Another region of Russian activities in the 18th century was the southeast of Europe. Nowadays it looks like a paradox, but in the early 18th century the Ottoman Empire that included the Balkans, Bulgaria and Moldavia was much more familiar to Europeans than Russia. Uh, it was there for a long time. It was an active participant of international politics, and there was a long tradition of both fighting and diplomatic relations with it, until the Second Balkan War of 1913, one could find Turkey in Europe on uh, most of European maps. Through the long 18th century, Russia was at war with Turkey for five times. And some historians think that it was the Treaty of Kuchuk Energy in 1774 that made the decline of the Ottoman Empire become a political reality. A hundred years later, the defeat in the war with Russia in 1878 became another turning point in the history of the Ottoman Empire and finally led to it, its collapse. In most of the 18th century wars with Turkey, Russia had Austria as its ally. But all the other great European powers were not indifferent and made great effort to diminish Russian success. After the victory of the Russian fleet over the Turkish at Chesma, in 1770. It became obvious that Russia turned into a real danger for the interests of great powers in the Mediterranean. In Russia itself, its successful wars in the south gave life first to the Catherine the Great's Greek project and then the pan-Slavic ideas and dreams of erecting the cross on the Holy Sophia that preoccupied the minds of many Russian thinkers for most of the 19th century. In the second half of the 18th century, under 
Catherine the Great, Russia's international status in Europe was at its maximum and it started to initiate new coalitions of her own and that act as a negotiator in European conflicts like in 1779 in the conflict between Austria and Russia. It also played a certain role in the American War of Independence, refusing to send Russian soldiers to North America at the request of George III, and also organizing a coalition of Baltic countries based on the Russian declaration of neutral trade. Catherine believed that the time had come when it was Europe's turn to learn from Russia and have it as an example. In the very end of the century, after the death of Catherine the Great, one of her ministers boasted that during her reign, no cannon in Europe could fire without permission from St. Petersburg. By that time, Napoleon's cannons were already firing without permission from anyone. And very soon, Russia experienced military losses that it didn't have in many decades. But if we, if we move further into the long 18th century, we'll find there Russia's victory over Napoleon and its crucial role in destroying his empire. Uh, Dominic Levin in his uh, Russia against Napoleon mentions that there were five great powers in Europe in the second half of the 18th century and Russia was the only one of the five without a bitter rival and this worked greatly to its, uh, to its advantage. I would add to this that by that time Russian diplomats learned how to use rivalry between the great powers and did their best to lessen the influence of each of them. But at the same time it was obvious for them already that the greatest danger for St. Petersburg was the union of great powers against Russia. Fortunately, that didn't happen until the Crimean War of 1855-56, which ended with a disgraceful defeat of the Russian army, but made possible the liberal reforms of Alexander II. These are some, just some, uh, major facts about Russian activities on the international arena in the 18th century and its role in 18th century Europe as I see it. But does that mean that Russia became part of Europe, member of the family? Uh, Peter the Great was taking great effort to become one through marriages of his children and nieces to German houses. For 34 years Russia was ruled by a German princess. Still, uh, the, the answer to the question is no. Russia was not welcomed in Europe, which I think was only natural. The very moment when Russia made its entrance into Europe wasn't the most favorable. The history of Europe in the previous century was the history of endless wars, uh, and cooperation at the same time, fight for territories or power and making peace at least for a short period. And by the 18th century, the peoples of Europe were used to living side by side. They knew or at least thought that they knew all about each other and they were used dealing with each other. 
they had mutual uh, cultural roots, mutual past and mutual historical memory with no Russians there. Russians were mostly unfamiliar and therefore dangerous strangers with ambitions that seemed to be not legal and not justified. No less important was the fact that Russia made an attempt to become the member of Europe when new principles, uh, principles of relations between the countries were under formation. War was still considered to be prestigious, profitable and a permitted way to settle conflicts. But at the same time, people gradually were uh, coming to the realization of the fact that peace is better than war and that wealth is uh, better gained by trade and not by robbery of one's neighbors. Therefore, war should be the last argument used only when diplomatic means are exhausted. Also, it was the time when there appeared the first theories of international relations. Henry IV of France was the first to suggest the idea of a Christian Republic as a confederation of European peoples, and he didn't know, I think, anything of Russians at that moment. So uh, this idea was later revived in the 18th century uh, and, uh, by Abbe Charles de Saint-Pierre, who also was the author of a book on internal peace. The Peace of Westphalia in 1684 initiated a new system of political order in Central Europe based upon the concept of a sovereign state governed by a sovereign and it laid basis for the nation states building. Finally, the Treaty of Utrecht of 1713 established the idea of the European balance of powers whose goal was to prevent anyone from claims for the world supremacy. Each of the European countries meant something different uh, by the balance of powers, but this way or other the roles were already distributed uh, without Russia being taken into consideration. The great powers of Europe considered the world to be already divided and didn't need any new rivals as well as new partners. Russia in its turn was making its best to make up for the time lost during its self-isolation. And against this background, its policies looked especially aggressive and expansionist. No less important is the fact that the chief actors of the international politics at the period were empires. Russia became an empire not gradually being part of Europe, as was the story with other empires, but it entered it already being an empire and executing imperial policies. Uh, so it's only natural that such policies combined with an enormous territory and inexhaustible human resources frightened Europeans and it's not accidental that in the late 18th, early 19th century false testaments of Peter the Great and Catherine the Great were uh, with plans of world supremacy were so popular in Western Europe. I guess we may suggest that if Russia's entrance into Europe happened a century earlier its image and its place in Europe could be different. At the same time, I always tell my Russian students that uh, explanations of this kind do not mean that in reality 18th century Russia was a peaceful country. 
It certainly was a very aggressive, uh, very aggressive country, but probably, at least I think, it wasn't more aggressive than other great powers of the time. Also, there are, so these are, um, so to say, academic explanations. While Russians often felt insulted when they thought they were opening their embrace to Europe, who backed out in her fright of being strangled. This kind of misunderstanding brought to life, in Russia I mean, uh, brought to life a strange combination of an inferiority complex and a feeling of superiority at the same time. On the one hand, Russian people have always been learning from Europe and making their best to prove that they were as good as Europeans. More so, a contemporary Russian political thinker, Vadim Mezhuev, asserts that the West has always been kind of a mirror for Russia, at which it has been looking. At the same time, Russian people have been proud of their military victories over Europeans who lacked the vast territories with numerous forests, fields and rivers that could absorb any intruder. While in Europe it has been popular to think that Russia's goal is to conquer all of it, in Russia people used to think, and some still think, that the West is constantly plotting against it. To sum it up, uh, there are a lot of myths and prejudices on both sides, myths and prejudices that may be traced back to the 18th century and that are still alive. We can make a long list of historical facts or episodes from the past which will explain how and why those myths and prejudices came into being and what made it possible for them to exist for so long. But that doesn't help much. I believe that getting rid of them could benefit <coughs> both sides and there is something that we, I mean, we historians, uh, could also do about it. Russian studies in the West, as, at least as I see it, is a very special field with departments, study groups, conferences and journals of its own. Comparative studies, like for instance uh, Professor Levin's uh, The Russian Empire and its rivals, are very few. In Russia, we also have a long tradition of studying European and Russian history separately. The model of historic education for the curriculum of faculties of history that first appeared in Russian universities in the 1870s was borrowed from Germany. But there was, uh, from the very start, there was some difference, since there were almost no textbooks both on Russian and world history in Russia at that time. Uh, that is why it was decided to teach two long parallel lecture courses, one in Russian history and another in world history. Textbooks soon appeared, but the two parallel courses in world and Russian history remained. This model of historical <coughs> education existed until the revolution of 1917, was reproduced then in the Soviet Union and survived until now. Uh, most of the students spend at least two or sometimes three years uh, listening for lectures in these two parallel courses. Uh, 
as for the, as far as the course of world history starts with ancient times and antiquity, while well, Russian history begins no sooner than in the ninth century, it's usually very difficult for the students to connect one and the other, and it's somehow, uh, I guess, that most of Russian students see it as two different things which has no connections with each other and when they for instance when they talk about Russian foreign, foreign policy Germany and Austria or Britain is uh, mentioned it is Austria or Germany or Britain which is something different from Germany and Britain in the course in world history uh, the same thing is with uh, the researchers uh, who actually in Russia mostly comprise two separate groups who has almost no contacts. Uh, in the universities, I think many of you know about that, we have so-called cathedra, and it's usually cathedra of Russian history, cathedra of world history, people, uh, people who work there certainly know each other and say hello when they meet, but that's uh, the beginning and the end. Uh, at the Faculty of History at High School of Economics, which was organized just two years ago and is the youngest fac uh, faculty, history faculty in Russia today, we have made an attempt to change this model by excluding from our curriculum a long course in Russian history as well as a such a long course in world history. But including courses in political, social, intellectual history in which Russian history is studied as an integral part of the world history. Shortly, we are also planning to form a medieval studies uh, research center where specialists in European and Russian history will be working on joint research projects. It certainly is a kind of experiment, but we hope that in due time we'll have a new generation of Russian historians who will be able to do comparative research and whose studies would help, at least a little, to overcome the barrier of old myths and prejudices. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much. Uh, I'd actually forgotten that I'd told you what to write about. It must have been one of my rare managerial moments, that's all I can think. <laughs> Bitter laughs from my colleagues. <laughs> but I'm very glad that I did, because uh, I think it's a lecture that's given us an enormous breadth, not only on the 18th century, but right up to sort of contemporary perceptions and issues within Russia today. Professor Kinesi has kindly said you would answer questions. I don't know whether you'd like to stand there or sit here. It's uh, up to you. But uh, we have about uh, 30 minutes for, for questions, so I hope you won't be inhibited. And I'll, all right. And, uh, <laughs> I'll take several. I think I'll take um, uh, two or three at a time. I think that would be sensible. I'll take one of the gentlemen there, in the middle, please. Well, I've got a question. In the 18th century, I, often, I was told that the best general the Russians produced is General Suvorov, who, who worked for Catherine the Great and then defeated Napoleon's armies. And I want to understand that the Order of Suvorov is one of the most distinguished orders of the Red Army. I wonder whether that's true of the Russian Army, the post-Red Army, 
But I did, uh, I, I'd very much like to have your views on General Sugarock and his role in the military strategy of the Russian general in the 18th century. I'll take Jeffrey one question. Jeffrey Hosky. I was wondering, you talked a lot about late 17th, early 18th century, after 1648, after the Treaty of Westphalia. And I think it's true that Europeans approached Russia with great suspicion and some fear at that time. Was that not also true of the way in which European powers approached the Ottoman Empire during the same period? Could one make that comparison? I had, in fact, initially the impression that they were even more suspicious and fearful of the Ottoman Empire than they were of Russia. So let's take those two questions. <coughs> yes, uh, I'm not sure. The first one is not really I'm not sure the uh, first question yeah. right. It was about yeah. Suvorov. Yes. Yeah, that, that, that's right. <laughs> what do you think now, looking sort of from a contemporary perspective, Suvorov? Uh, you know that Suvorov was. There is a phrase in Russian, you know, Geroy Ruskova Naroda. So he was one of the heroes of Russian people, you know. And very highly, uh, uh, and you know that in the Soviet period, uh, during the Second World War, he was one of the. Uh, it was one of the names that that was mentioned by Stalin during the war, and then the order of Suvorov was established, and so he was one of the heroes of Russian people. Certainly, uh, we now uh, have. Not many, but there are some new studies of Suvorov, which, uh, which the authors of which are not trying to diminish, you know, the meaning, the uh, the greatness of Suvorov as an army leader, but also trying to put him, I would say, into context and showing that Suvorov was depending on Potemkin, that Potemkin wasn't. Uh, an enemy of Suvorov, as Soviet historians were always trying to to show, so on. So, uh, to, and then uh, in the 19th century, there were some things published uh, about Suvorov, which I would say mm, uh, Soviet people wouldn't know about, like. Uh, Anecdotes about Suvorov and uh, like uh, Masson's memoirs uh, about Suvorov, and so he, Suvorov was certainly a very peculiar figure, not a very original figure, uh, not a usual person. And, uh, this is uh, something that it's not a hero, you know, like like uh, uh, like a hero depicted by Soviet propaganda should be. I guess uh, so. Somehow, it's it's not a, it's a, a slight change. We, we, we I think that uh, modern historians, contemporary historians, are looking more calmly at Suvorov, you know, more realistic. Uh, as for mm, yes, certainly, Ottoman Empire was a great danger, mm -hmm. and uh, it was realized as a great danger, and. It, much more uh, than Russia, of course, but until the moment, uh, I think that until the moment that when Russia uh, showed its uh, its strength, probably you know, and then 
I think the the goal of uh, great powers in the 18th century was somehow to to keep balance between the Ottoman and the Russian Empire. They didn't want the Russians to conquer the Ottoman Empire. They didn't want the Ottoman Empire to conquer the Russian Empire. You see, but to keep balance because it was uh, it was wise because it was obvious that these two powers will be fighting each other for a long time. And then situation changes in the 19th century because when the Ottoman Empire started to collapse, then Britain and other great powers will be fighting for the, uh, for the you know, pieces of territories in Europe. Uh, so, so it was changing. You see, I, I, I have mentioned uh, in the lecture, I have mentioned my uh, TV interview several years ago. One of the questions I was asked uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's uh, one of Russia um, TV, very popular programs, uh, long interviews with intellectuals. And I was asked a question, is Russia Europe or Asia? And my answer was, that is an uh, irrelevant question. I don't know whether it's, and I, I don't think it's, uh, it's, it's the feeling. You know, when you look at the map, you see that part of it is in Europe, part of it is in Asia, yes? But also we know that the border uh, is something, uh, you know, something that we imagined, you know. We, we, we imagined that the border between Europe and Asia is in the Urals, in the 18th century, by the way, we did it. Yes, and it was Vasily Tatyushev who first uh, suggested that the border is there. Uh, but who knows where the border is really, really is, you know, it's something imaginable. So, uh, I think it's the feeling. The feeling of most Russians today, is, at least as I see it, is that they want to be Europeans. They, uh, and they I wouldn't say majority probably, but many Russians today are trying to behave like Euro Europeans, or at least they think uh, um, they think Europeans behave like this, and so they they behave this way. You see, uh, uh, and then, but then you say uh, when you talk about that, uh, what is Europe to be a European? What does it mean to be European? Does it mean to be uh, French, Italian, German? What is it? It's different, you know. Uh, the great Russian uh, historian Sergei Solovyov, uh, in I guess it was early 1870s, in one of his works, he wrote something like, uh, "Look." There is a German, there is a British, there is a French, there is an Italian who uh, contact, I, I was 
trying to say email. No. <laughs> they are cutting each other by telegraph. They make an appointment, they meet in some place, they talk the same language, they discuss, they have a mutual business, he says, and they are dressed the same way. But look at them attentively and you will see that the Italian is still Italian, that the French is still French, and so on. So you see, it was 150 years ago. So uh, very often when in Russia, in this discussion, people are saying, should we copy from Europe? What does it mean? Should we copy from France or from Germany or from Hungary? You know. So uh, it's something abstract, I would say. Following up on your response to the last question, could you speak a little bit about um, Russians' view of Siberia in the course of the 18th century, where it has changed over the, um, through the 18th century and what it had impact on the extent to which Russia identified themselves with Europe as opposed to Asia or the east of Real? Russia's relationship with Siberia. 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 Well, uh, in the 18th century, Siberia is part of Russian Empire. And I would say by the 18th century, it's an integrated part uh, of Russian Empire. Uh, it's certainly, uh, it's certainly still, uh, uh, still rather uh, uh, not, not many people there, you know, are, are underpopulated, but. Still, uh, but uh, it, it is an integrated part, and uh, not. I wouldn't say that Siberia was any kind of a problem for Russian government in the 18th century. By that time, it was a problem in, in the 17th century, with uh, you know uprisals of uh, local peoples and so on. But not in the 18th century. With 18th centuries, it's okay. Would you like to say something about the religious aspect of your topic? In the East, you have the two great powers, the Ottoman Empire and Russia. Russia is a Christian country, yet not a Christian country, because she's Orthodox. Yeah. How does this fit into your general view? Well, you know, uh, mm, I don't think that the rulers of Russia felt it as a problem. And uh, you know very well that uh, uh, with Peter the Great, a lot of uh, Protestants and Catholics came to Russia. And uh, by, the by the second half of the century, under Catherine, uh, the, the idea of religious tolerance was already there, at least, at least Catherine knew about it. And uh, also Catherine, uh, as we know, was quite tolerant towards Muslims. And she, she uh, we know that, uh, we know, yeah, uh, uh, in, in Kazan you will find the monument to Catherine the Great, which was erected not long ago, because she permitted uh, building new mocks there, you see. So, uh, I don't think they felt it like a problem. Uh, and as for educated people, educated Russian people, they also, I, 
they also felt themselves like Potemkin, you know, who was very in, who, who was a very religious man, but at the same time very interested in uh, Catholicism, and uh, so they didn't feel. It. I think later, later, uh, by the end of the century, in the 19th century, when we had. Uh, when it is considered that in the 19th century there appeared what is uh, named as Russian political thought, Russian общественная you know, and then it, it became important, not in the 18th century. Uh, uh, my question is about the inferiority, superiority simultaneously that you talked about, which is interesting and still prevails, I would have thought. Now, what exactly are the origins? I'm familiar with it in the Slavophiles. In the 18th century, when the connection was really being made, wasn't there more about wanting to learn, wanting to be part of? Was there a superiority feeling in the 18th century? Uh. Well, uh, you know, 18th century is a, is a, is a long period. Yeah. And by the end, yes, it appears. And we have, uh, it w I, I would say even that it was somehow initiated by Catherine. Uh, as I mentioned, she, she thought that uh, time had come that Europe should study from, from Russia and uh, should copy Russia, you see. And there, there was a note, uh, a small note that I came across at the archives when she, which was written uh, several months before her death. And it was addressed to one of the persons in, uh, in court. And uh, it says, and it seems there was a discussion uh, about uh, whether Russia is young or it's an old country, and one of the young men said that Russia is a young country. It was popular to say in the 18th century that, and afterwards, you know, we, we have a very popular novel about Peter the Great, with, which is titled Russia Moladaya, a young Russia. So uh, it's a young country, and Catherine says, no, we are a very old country with a very old tradition, and she, uh, she mentions, she gives a list of uh, Russian princes starting with the Gulik from the 9th century. And then she said something uh, which I think contemporary Russian so-called <coughs> patriots like very much. She said, there was time when it was ordered to study from Germans, from Dutch, but uh, their small dress didn't feed our colossus. Uh, so that was the idea. So it was appearing, you know, but it's, it was a very, I would say it was a very complicated process. And a very, uh, you see, the end of the century is the time when, you know, French Revolution with nationalism appearing, with a national idea developing, and, it also uh, was happening in Russia as well. Uh, not the same way as it is uh, probably in other European countries, Western European countries, but it did happen. Yes. 
you, you mentioned the, um, the death of the Empress Elizabeth III and the, the miracle of the House of Brandenburg. Right. I thought maybe you might have made more of that because after all, had Frederick the Great been defeated in the Seven Years' War, the history of Germany and probably the whole of Europe would be extremely sure. different. Sure. But also, is this, although he's saved by uh, the Russian change of ruler, uh, he's very, very suspicious and fearful of Russia thereafter, never trusts uh, Catherine. But this is sure the beginning of the a kind of German paranoia about Russia, which is at the centre of a lot of European history afterwards, because not only does Frederick and his successors fear Russia, but the experience even of being liberated by the, the Russians during the Napoleonic Wars at the end of them means that you see a Russian army move right across Europe. And during the 19th century, both Metternich and later Bismarck uh, make it a priority of their diplomacy to try and keep Russia in alliance until by 1914 it's really the fear of Russia that makes the Germans go into the First World War. Mm -hmm. so, and then of course you've got Hitler and Stalin after that. But I mean, it seems to me this Russian-German uh, you know, fear of each other or squaring up to each other after uh, Frederick is, is really one of the main things that come out of the 18th century because of, because of Russian policy. Well, I think that uh, through many centuries there was a lot of sympathy mostly in Russia towards Germany. Until, until, until at least uh, the Second World War, and uh, uh, there was a lot of Germans in Russia, uh, not only Germans from the Baltics, but also Germans who came from Germany, and uh, you know Germans were Germans were familiar, I would say, for Russians, you know. And uh, and uh, uh, starting with Peter the Great, who was, you know, uh, it's interesting that Peter um, Peter made friends and was copying mostly the Protestant countries, not Catholic countries. So Germany was one uh, one of the models for for, for, for Peter. So, but uh, in course of years, in course of centuries, it changed, and you know, uh, Peter the Third was very fond of uh, Frederick, and uh, he, uh, as well as Catherine, was. You see, Catherine. It was there was a kind of rivalry between uh, Catherine and Frederick, and they were competing of who is more enlightened. I would say, who is more friendly with. Uh, the French uh, uh, Enlighteners, you know, but uh, there was no hatred, and uh, Catherine didn't didn't go on with the war when she came to power. You see, and uh, more than that, Frederick considered Catherine his own creation. They were related. She 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 knew him personally from her childhood. She, she as a baby, she sat on his knees. You see, and uh, so there was no hatred. I would say mostly sympathy. Through the 18th century, the most uh, probably, I wouldn't say hatred, but despised country in Russia was France. I'm not talking about hatred. I'm talking about fear and the possibility of Russian strength being used against Russia. 
Yeah. I don't think Frederick actually trusted Catholic, especially over Poland and Austria. Well, uh, there was, you know, Russia uh, started, uh, Russia joined the Seven Year War because there was fear of Russia, certainly. And uh, <coughs> they didn't want uh, it. Uh, they were, uh, they, uh, they saw it emerging as one of the great powers and they didn't want it. That's, that's obvious. But I, what I mean is that, uh, that there, were, there was a lot of sympathy towards Germans, you see, but between the countries it's certainly very different. We are almost out of time. Is there one more question? I can take one more question. It's yours. <laughs> uh, thank you for the lecture. You, men you mentioned that the, um, this idea of seeing the 18th century through the prism of Russia and Europe represents uh, some of the paradox. I was just wondering if you would be so kind as to sort of offer your reaction to the view that um, this idea of Russia and Europe is actually a false reference, false uh, point of reference, and actually we should see the 18th century through a prism of sort of graduated development. some way, yes, probably, yes, because uh, as, 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 as I said earlier, you know, we uh, uh, often in Russia we, we use this word Europe, 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 while, you know, Europe is very different on one side, on the other hand, if we talk about uh, modern times, you know, the European Union, with, you know, all this that happens, then probably we could speak. But as for 18th century, certainly, certainly, if you if you take a volume titled Russia and Europe in the 18th century, and there will be a mixture of everything. So it it certainly, I think, it's not uh, probably not the right way to to to, to just approach to this kind of uh, problems. It's not the right way to study that, to my mind. I can add my own note of confusion on what Europe means. I used to love coming out of the metro in Moscow. It's a, a little booth for shoe repair, a scrappy little booth, and the sign above the top that was shoe repair, European quality. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, what does it mean? Yes, the loved label, you know. It's the European consciousness. And uh, one of the labels you have, you know what you <laughs> Yes, so uh, if you repair your apartment uh, in a European style. So in you, you, a lot of you know, words like that now, nowadays. nowadays. And when, you, when you say Euro, that means quality. Uh, okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think, I think